and just one verse here, maybe two. Verse 18, while we look not on the, at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now take your Bibles back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. That will be where we'll be spending the majority of our time at today. The message today is simple. It's just a title is this, A Crisis at Hand. A Crisis at Hand. I'm not speaking of a financial collapse or a new pandemic that is on the scene. Or you might be one that needs to be uh, leading the charge in the crisis and helping others to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Whatever the case may be, the, 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 the statement still remains, souls are in a crisis and they need to be saved. We read Luke 14 verses 1 through 6 and we noticed in this passage here there was a man that had a serious malady. He had the dropsy. Um, I didn't know what the dropsy was until I had to look that up. So uh, it's not, you know, in my uh, medical repertoire, maybe. That, uh, the dropsy is a condition of edema, uh, great swelling of the body. It was easily, this, his case would have obviously been easily recognizable to the naked eye, for it was clear to everybody in the room that the man had this condition. And he looks upon this person with great compassion and care, and he desires to heal him. And the, but there's also another group in the room, and it's the chief Pharisees and the lawyers that are sitting around watching to see what he would do. And his compassion and care quickly turns to critique as he looks at these men and he issues this critical statement to them, or I should say critical question, which of you shall have an ass or an ox and fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? These two people, these two groups, if you will, are the subject and focus of Jesus' message there. In fact, this is not the end of the message. I don't have time to continue on with this, but... Jesus is going to continue his message after he dismisses the man with dropsy that's been recently healed. And he's going to give to them a parable about uh, those coming to a dinner and to a supper. Jesus gives several parables of people coming to dinners, to suppers. 
Uh, he does this about three different times, and all three times uh, you'll find that the ones that should have been there are not there, and the ones that should not have been there are there. Uh, one of the most famous or maybe infamous ones is the prodigal son. The prodigal son should not have been there at the dinner of the fetid calf, and the elder brother should have been, for he was the faithful one. But what does our story tell us? What does the account tell us? That rather the prodigal son is there, and the elder brother, who is a representation of the Pharisees, is not there. In our case here, in our parable that you will continue to read from verses 7 down through the chapter, you will find here that those that were known and those that were wealthy and those that were friends of the king should have been at the feast, but yet they will not come. And so the king sends out into the highways and the hedges and compels others that are lame and blind and so forth to come into the feast. And it's going to be an amazing day when we get to heaven one day. It's going to be an amazing day. Uh, the Bible compares heaven, and that's why the book of Numbers tells us all about the feast of God. Because it gives us a good glimpse into heaven and what it's like, what it's going to be like when we get there. That's why God gave the feast to the children of Israel and so that they might have a precursor to what heaven is going to be like. What does it say that what, is that, what does the Bible say that Lazarus went? He went into Abraham's what? Into his bosom. What does that mean? That means he dwelt with him. That means he was, he was there beside him. He was there talking with him. He was next to him. He was reclining, if you will, upon him. In the ancient East, we know that they did not sit at tables and chairs like we're used to. They reclined upon couches and they ate upon pillows and they ate with the table spread out upon them and they would eat some and rest some and eat some and rest some. And how many of you would like to do that maybe this afternoon, you know? Uh, just have a big spread out before you, you know? That's the way we should do it for Thanksgiving dinners, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, stretch your belly out so you can fit more in. But listen, all of those feasts are just precursors to what God is trying to tell us in his New Testament about these feasts that are going to be there. We're even told in the Revelation, what does it say? That we're going to have a marriage supper of the what? Of the Lamb. Listen, folks, heaven is not a place that is going to be boring. It's not going to be a place where it's just you and God. It's not going to be a place where uh, you're not going to know what to do. It's going to be a place of enjoyment. We're going to be sitting around a table. We're going to be banqueting. We're going to be having fellowship with one another. We're going to be talking to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Paul and Silas. We're going to be talking to each other. We're going to be talking to saints that are all around the globe that have been from the ages past. We're going to be talking with them. We're going to be worshiping God. It's going to be an unusual and unique situation that we've never experienced in our whole entire life. And it's going to be great. Be wonderful. How many of you are looking forward to going to heaven? If you're saved, you ought to be. Amen? If you're not saved, your soul is in crisis. Because the exact opposite is true of you, is that you will be in a place that the Bible terms hell. Hell. And it's not a place of banqueting or resting or of leaning and reclining. No, it's a place of weeping. It's a place of gnashing or gritting of teeth because of pain. It's a place of fire. It's a place of smoke. It's a place of brimstone. It's a place of torments. It's a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. 
You don't want to go there, my friend. If you're not saved, that's where you will go. Because that's where the Bible says that you will spend eternity. That's my authority is God's word. I have nothing else but God's word for my authority. But God doesn't want you to go there. And God did not want, and Jesus did not want these men, the Pharisees, to go there. And he did not want this man of dropsy to continue in his state either. But Jesus desires to communicate the message of the gospel to everyone. But yet sometimes I believe that we can be like the Pharisees. We can be like Jonah. I brought that story out of Jonah and we'll refer to it here at the end of the message tonight, this, this morning. Because that is, I believe, what Jesus is drawing upon. I believe there's a great similarity between the story of Jonah and this particular story right here. A lot of similarities that are happening within these two particular accounts of God's word. But we as believers need to evaluate our desires to reach others for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we ever possess a smug attitude of the Pharisees? Or are we more caring and compassionate like Jesus is? If we're not careful, we will find ourselves being more like the Pharisees, more like Jonah, caring for the things of the world, caring for our religion, for our material things, for our gourds, for our cattle, our assets and investments, more than we care about the things of God and the souls of men. Let's see how that works out in our story here this morning. Number one, let's notice this. We see the unfortunate situation. I call it the unfortunate situation because it is still a continuous situation. The man of dropsy may have been healed, but the Pharisee's problem has still not been healed. It still continues and it still persists in our own churches and our own lives at times. We find in verses number 1 through 1 and 2 that that this unfortunate situation begins by Jesus going to eat with the Pharisees, a chief Pharisee, after synagogue was done. I believe that they probably had went to synagogue, and after synagogue was done, they were going to the Pharisee's house to eat some bread and have lunch, to have dinner, eat bread on the Sabbath day. Jesus was a man that was not afraid to eat with others. He was a man that enjoyed uh, the fellowship with other people. He enjoyed that. There was nothing wrong with that. And I think all of us can learn a great lesson from Jesus Christ here that he accepted these invitations to go and eat, to go and dine. He even tells his disciples at the end of his life, after the resurrection, what does he say? He says, come and dine. Come and dine. You know, a great way for all of us to minister to one another, to have grace with one another, to edify one another, to have fellowship with one another, is to eat with one another. And I don't just mean on the feet. Laser focused on the task at hand that I missed out on that opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. That's what this message is all about today. Souls are in crisis and they need to hear the gospel. I don't wouldn't accuse anybody in this auditorium, at least I wouldn't hope, I would hope not, I would never have to accuse anybody of this. I would hope I would never have to accuse anybody if you're trying to set up Jesus, you know, 
to catch him in some kind of audacious act against the tradition of the elders, all right? Uh, to try to catch, set Jesus into some sinister plot. I don't think that's what our motive is here this morning. But the point is this, is that we need to ask ourselves, are we allowing things in our lives to obscure our vision sometimes of what really matters? The Pharisees have allowed their traditions and their laws to take precedence over the welfare of the human race. Let's just skip away from, let's just kind of break away from the whole thought here of the gospel and telling people about Jesus Christ and souls and everything. Let's just let's just break it down to the bare facts here. I mean, the, the Pharisees cared, were set more precedence upon their laws and their traditions, and they cared more for that than for some poor soul that couldn't even hardly stand up. They cared more about their traditions than they cared about the health and the welfare of a person's life. Jesus is even going to make a claim to them at the end of the, for at the, end of the account here that you care more for your cattle and your donkeys than you do for people. Let's just break that down. What about us? Take your Bibles over to the gospel, to the gospel, to the epistle of James, chapter number two. James chapter two. Notice what it says here. James two. In verse number eight. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. If we just held all, if we just held all that commandment, right? We would do really good in life. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the law and are yet offended at one point, he is guilty of all. And then he goes on to talk about these things that you're guilty of and so forth, adultery, uh, murder, and such forth. But look down to verse number 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? Then look at the illustration he gives. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled. Notwithstanding, you give him not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it yet profit? It doesn't profit anything is what he's meaning there. Just like faith without works doesn't profit anything. So if we ourselves are being a respecter of persons, if we're not helping the weak, if we're not trying to reach out, we see a brother or sister in destitute and in need, and we don't try to do something. Now, I'm not saying that there's been times when I've tried to reach out to people. I've tried to help them, and they don't want help. They, they, they refuse help, all right? I, I get that. But do we see needs, and when seeing those needs, do we take action, or do we say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled? I hope everything's okay for you. I hope you'll be all right. Are we any better than the Pharisees? We need to be very careful not to allow the world and the things of the world to obscure our vision of not only hurting people, 
but also people that need the gospel. We may not be sitting on councils judging God and His Word and the Lord's actions, but we too often sometimes be the silent majority who say nothing at all to help those that need Christ. That's why I call this the unfortunate situation. We've all been faced and we've all been challenged with this day by day. That's why I read to you that verse in 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we look not at the things which are seen, this was Paul's motive, this was Paul's vision, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's what I was trying to do at the beginning of the year. I want us to have a vision for souls, a vision for the lost. So I would look there at that first, that first message, having a vision for people, that people are lost and need the gospel. And it's an unfortunate situation when we don't see that. And if you're lost here today, then my friend, you've come to the right place this morning. You've come to the rescue house. You've come to the hospital where you can find some true balm that can really heal your broken soul. And that's Jesus Christ the Lord, Him crucified and risen again. Your soul is in crisis. People's souls are in crisis and they need the gospel. But not only do we see an un- the unfortunate situation, but look here. Very oddly here to me is that the story here, we see the unseen figure. Because to me, the, the historical account that we have here of this man with dropsy, it seems as if the man with dropsy is almost kind of fades off into the background, doesn't it? The whole entire thing ends up being about the Pharisees and about uh, their their actions towards this man. So this man here with the dropsy, this man with edema, this man with this great swelling almost kind of shifts away from us. If we're not careful, we miss him. But praise God, Jesus didn't miss him. Amen. You know what? Jesus didn't miss me. I was in a group of over 4,000 people. You know what? Jesus didn't miss me. He saw me. He he was that preacher was up there and he was preaching the gospel and he drew a bow out of at a venture and just shot him. He shot a gospel arrow out into that audience that day of over four thousand people and the gospel arrow hit me right in the heart. Praise God, he doesn't miss. He doesn't miss. And Christian, he hasn't missed you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you're going through. He hasn't missed you. He knows where you're at. Jesus did not miss this fellow, but he obviously notices his physical malady and he proceeds to help him with real help. Now, I had to look up what dropsy was. Again, like I said, it's an issue of edema. Now, edema, if you don't even know what that is, if you told me what edema was yesterday, I wouldn't have known what edema probably was either. So edema is this issue of severe swelling of the body. Uh, A lot of us have seen that with people that have severe swelling in their legs. Uh, A lot of times that happens. Maybe even one leg will be extremely larger than the other leg. It's an issue that is related to congestive heart failure is what it's really all related to. Uh, Our renal failure is another reason why. But nonetheless... Some of the ancient depictions of the dropsy not only depicts it of being in the legs, but some even think that the disease existed within the abdomen. And some, many ancient depictions have the abdomen being extremely swollen. 
And the medical attention that they did back in those days was actually to make small incisions among the abdomen to allow the excess fluids to come out. So I don't know, some have said that it is part of the face and the face being literally a dropping because of the water weight being there. Whatever it might have been, it is obvious that when this man walked into the room, everybody went, he's got the dropsy, you know, he's got edema, he's got a problem, he's got an issue. You know what that made me think of? Is that we don't have to wonder who sinners are. We don't have to really guess who is a sinner and who is not a sinner. Sometimes they're easily recognized by being a druggie or an alcoholic or a fornicator or a, or a womanizer or somebody that is a cheater or a scoundrel or somebody that is a, is a, is, is, is dabbling in all sorts of kind of wickedness. But at other times, they're like these Pharisees, aren't they? They're just people that are religious, but they don't have Christ. Uh, other times, they're people that let you know that they're not Christians. Miles and I were talking to a guy yesterday and was giving him the gospel, and I said to him something on the nature of, uh, are you a Christian? And he says, and he said his retort to me was, why? Do you even care? And he just completely shut down the conversation after that. Well, I don't have to like go, now let me analyze this situation here. You know what I mean? Uh, is this man, you know, a Christian? Does he care about God? Does he care about it's obviously he doesn't. I spoke to somebody else yesterday and uh, they uh, they they were very kind and nice and uh, gave me a clear testimony of the gospel and that they love the Lord and they go to a good church and they trusted Jesus Christ and they believe in Him alone for salvation. All right, so it's not hard a lot of times to try to figure out who is saved and who's not saved. All right, just like this room right here that is in front of uh, Jesus Christ. He's got these people that care nothing and for others. You know, they care more about their material possessions and their own traditions than they do about the welfare of other people. And then you obviously have somebody here that is very sick and needs attention. So they're easy to spot a lot of times. Not like we have to get out magnifying glasses or research papers or have to do extended research on who's saved and who's not saved at my work. You know? Who's saved and not saved? I know there are some chameleons every once in a while in the forest. But it's usually easy to recognize those that are not saved. It's usually easy to pick them out. Especially if you're saved. Amen? You kind of get a bead on that. You even get a bead on who's saved, don't you? You ever been around somebody that was a Christian and you didn't know they were a Christian? I mean, you had no you had no formal contact with this person whatsoever. Or maybe you met them through, uh, maybe you were just buying something from them from Facebook Marketplace, or maybe it was something else like this. And you just meet them, and, and you're talking with them, and there's some kind of kindred spirit there. You notice it immediately, and then somehow in the conversation, it comes out that you know, you know, I go to this church and I got saved when I was ten years old on vacation. You know, I got saved too. I mean, you know, and you find out, oh, I, you know, this person's saved. That's what that was. That wasn't my spirit witnessing with her, with her spirit. That's a wonderful thing. 
But this man obviously has a significant problem. Notice what Jesus does for the man. I think it's a great representation of how we need to reach others for Christ, obviously. Verse 4. He does three things. He took him, he healed him, and he let him go. The word took there means to touch is the idea, but our translators chose not to use the word touch. It uses that word a lot of times um, in our Bibles. It says that Jesus touched the man, he healed the man, he touched them, and he healed them. But the Bible here is translated as took the man. He took the man. So there's obviously something greater here. There's something of a little bit more force here. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means that this man was falling down because literally the word took here can mean to catch or to seize upon. To me, it seems as if that if the medical condition that we're talking about here is in the legs, edema most of the time, 90% of the time in the legs and the extremities, and this man had a severe case of it so much that everybody noticed it, that this man probably had a hard and difficult time standing. And as this man's standing there, does he lose his balance? And Jesus grabs him and takes him up, catches him, seizes him, lays hold of him. Whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. What is this? Is this that he touches him. He helps him. You know, it's been said many times, and it's not original with me, but people don't know how, don't care how much you know until they know how much you what? Care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This man, Jesus, he helps him. He touches him. There's a great song that says this, how can we reach a world we never touch? How can we reach a world we never touch? You know, maybe this man that I spoke with, and I know where he is, that was very found the gospel very off-putting. I don't blame him, necessarily. Why would I talk to a stranger either? You know, don't really know him. But would it be better for me if I were to meet him again or somehow make another contact to show him that I do care? Figure out some way to show them that I do care? Maybe he thinks that I'm just some belligerent Christian who wants to shove my religion down his throat because whenever he was 10 years old, that's what they did to him at his church. I don't know. We don't know people's backgrounds. We don't know people's stories. We don't know people where people have come from or what they're or where they're going. We don't know if the man has just gone through or recently through a divorce and maybe he's hurting. I don't know if he's just lost a child is questioning God. We don't know people. And so we've got to be caring with them. Jesus was always caring. He was always compassionate. Secondly, he healed the man. I believe this is a great representation of how we give the gospel to people. We care for them. And then we heal them. You say, how do we heal them? We healed them by giving them the gospel. It wasn't just enough that Jesus would touch the man, but he also needed to heal the man. And the only way that we're going to ever provide for anybody a great healing is by giving to them the gospel. You might fill somebody's belly, but leave them spiritually hungry. 
Don't ever do that. When you go to help somebody, then also tell them the gospel. Because that's the ultimate remedy that is going to save somebody. That is going to help somebody. You might help somebody for a night, which is fine, and you should. And we should do that. But we have a desire to help somebody through all eternity. Amen? And notice he, he let him go. Jesus always does this. I think of the man of the maniac of Gadara. You know, Jesus said he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no. He said, go. What did he tell him? He said, go and tell the great things that God has done for you. And Jesus is always doing that. Soul winners should produce soul winners. That's really what it boils down to. When you tell somebody the gospel and they get saved, you let them go. You go tell them, you say, hey, go tell somebody what God's done for you. Instruct them in the gospel. And then finally, you find the unanswerable question. Jesus tells them in verses, in fact, you've got two of them. Verse three, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? There's no answer. Verse five, which of you shall have an ox or an ox or an ass and fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull them out on the Sabbath day? Jesus sends this man away and then he begins to deal with the other group, the Pharisees. And he talks to them about this unanswerable question. Really simply, the question is not, it's unanswerable because it's rhetorical. It's a rhetorical question. If one of you have got a piece of livestock that gets caught in a pit, what are you going to do about it, even if it's on the Sabbath day? Well, they all know the answer. What's the answer? They're going to go dig it out. They're going to go help the animal. It's an asset. It's an investment. It needs help, and they need to care for their animals, too. But I do find it interesting that the Bible goes through the detail for us that in verse 4, they held their peace, and also in verse 6, they could not answer him again to these things. It takes the time to tell us these things, and I think that's important. Why? Because the question was not just a rhetorical question that was not meant to be answered, but rather it was also a convicting question that shut their mouth. Because they knew what he was saying. They didn't have to answer, and they couldn't answer because they were convicted of heart. At least they were not so foolish to try to give an excuse to why they wouldn't help this man or why this man should not have been helped. So the question is quite plain, and the question for all of us is simply this, that if one of us had a major asset of ours, that was stuck in the mud, even if it was on Sunday or some other very important day, would not we all take the time, the effort, and the energy to assure that investment is taken care of and is pulled out of the mud? We would. But for the Jews, this illustration is even more clear and even, I should say, clearer and more direct. For he mentions the Sabbath day. For on the Sabbath day, it is instructed of them that they should do what? No servile work. They were to not work on the Sabbath day. That word means that in Moses' time that one man was stoned to death because he was gathering sticks. But if it wasn't a case of an emergency like an ox or an axe being, ass being stuck in some pit and losing its life, then obviously they could take care of these matters. 
But the clear point of the passage is this, is they are not, they were willing to do that and break their own traditions, not even break their traditions, but break the law. They were willing to help this animal for a greater law of mercy, but they were not willing to help this poor man who's in tremendous pain, who's shaking, perhaps unable to stand, and that's in grave danger of dying at any time because of his condition. Congestive heart failure. Especially when the doctor's in the house. Amen? <laughs> the doctor is there. Listen to me, my friend. If you've got the gospel, you've got the doctor. You've got the balm of Gilead. You've got the cleansing power. You've got the blood of the Lamb. You've got Jesus Christ on your side, my friend. And He is all that people need. These men, and this story, is so much like that last little bit of Jonah's life. In Jonah chapter 4 that I read to you at the beginning of the message. Jonah, like these men, scrupulously and meticulously watches over the city of Nineveh to see what God would do. Like these men watched over the man with the man with the with the issue of dropsy to see what he would do. Jonah is mad and indifferent towards God, just like these men are mad and indifferent towards God. Jonah, Jonah cannot answer God, just like these men cannot answer God. People are saved in Jonah's story, just like this man is saved in this story. God asked Jonah an unanswerable question. Jonah, should not I have saved Nineveh, where there were six score and thousand people and also very much cattle? It's an unanswerable question. The answer is yes. But he's convicted and he can't say anything. Jonah cares more for the gourd than he does for the people of Nineveh, the lost souls. And even a reference to the cattle, I believe, is interesting. Because here in our story, at least they have maybe uh, grown up a little bit and they're not so much concerned about gourds, but at least maybe they've grown to cattle. But I don't even think that's the case because Jesus even tells them you care more about tithing off your herb gardens than you do for the greater laws of mercy and justice and faith. Jonah is a precursor, I believe, to the Pharisees. He's a precursor to the Pharisees. Sitting there smugly, looking over that city, wondering and thinking, what is God going to do? And if we're not careful, we might get the same way. We might develop smug attitudes towards the lost and ungodly. I don't know what your opinion is of our president or people like Nancy Pelosi. What, what happens whenever somebody says somebody's name that really just irks you? Do you revel in disgust and hate towards that person? Or do you pray that they'll be saved? You see, if we're not careful, we'll be a lot like the Pharisee. 
We'll be mad at our congressmen and senators and all the other people that are in charge. Or we'll be upset with the rich and famous, with the Forbes latest list list of billionaires. Or we'll be mad at the Hollywood stars and look at them in disgust and think about how they live and what they're doing. Or we'll look at a drunk on the side of the road and flip up our noses at them and say, why in the world do they live such a way? Don't they get they get a job? And we'll look down our noses at so many people, but yet we won't pray for them. But yet we'll never give them the gospel. You say they won't hear it. How do you know it? You say they won't hear it. Who cares? Because it's not your command for them to be, it's not for you to save them, it's just for us to tell them. To tell them. Let us not be a Jonah sitting on our little hills. Let this church not be a little hill, a little place to gather where we can ever smugly look down on people, even people in our own congregation. But let us be ones that are willing to invite whoever may come into the den. Compel them to come in. Get them out from the highways and the hedges. Find out where they've been. Why haven't they come back? What has been the issue? Come back to the Lord. What are we showing to God we care more about? We care more about the world and the things of it. Do we possess a care for souls? A care for souls that will spend eternity in heaven or hell. There's a crisis at hand. Souls will be saved. Souls will be saved. Is your soul in crisis, my friend? With every head bowed and every eye closed. If your soul is in crisis and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior you've never met the great physician, the great healer, and you've never had him as Lord and Savior, if you right now do not know that Christ is your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand right now, Pastor, pray for me, I do not know that I'm saved, I never have been. How many this morning, as the invitation is about to play, how many of you this morning can say, you know what, Pastor, I could be better soul winner. Could be better at telling folks about the Lord. Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Many hands are being raised. I could be better. I won't ask you to raise your hand here, but have you have you been looking down maybe on some others? And this morning you need to ask God to forgive you for that. And you need to ask the Lord to help you to pray for lost people witness to lost people. May God give us a vision for souls. There's a crisis in hand. As the piano plays, I encourage you to come down here to this altar and pray. Why don't you pray and ask God for a soul?
Have a good afternoon. We'll have service back here tonight at 6 p.m. 6 p.m. we'll have service, and uh, we hope that you will uh, make it here tonight. God bless you. You are dismissed.